Well, it's a joy to be here. It's been my honor to um, be associated with Grace Fellowship now for about seven years, I suppose, being on the board and uh, having an opportunity to share with uh, pastors, counselors, uh, different sorts of people through this ministry. And um, when John asked me to speak on brokenness, uh, perhaps you might think, oh, Bummer, what a horrible topic to have to deal with is brokenness. And maybe you even think of it as being something to be avoided, but I want to share something with you. I want to make a statement to set up everything I'm going to say. Brokenness is the gateway to blessing. And um, the people you deal with, the people you counsel, have no clue of that for the most part, that brokenness is the gateway to blessing. I think there's several good books on brokenness. I'm a book person. I, I'm, you know, the book is the most important, the Bible, but there's several good books about it. And one of the best ones I found is a fairly recent book by Charles Stanley called The Blessings of Brokenness. And even if you didn't read the book, the title of the book would be a, a, a message in itself, The Blessings of Brokenness. Um, in our... Self-centered generation, and I know there are many uh, nations represented here, but I think it's true in all nations. We're self-centered people who somehow think that God exists for us. Now, now, let me tell you something real quick. God does not exist for us. We exist for God. Our very purpose for being is to bring glory to Him. That's why we're here. And yet the, the, the self-centeredness that God exists for us and that God is there to give us our desires. No, 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 no. God is in the process of changing what we desire more than giving us what we desire. Um, he's bringing us to the place that our delight is in Him and that He then puts His desires in our heart. That's what Psalm, one of my favorite verses in the Psalms is Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That means He changes your desires to make them His desires, so your desires are His desires, and so that when you pray, when you seek Him, you're wanting what He wants. God is in the process of changing our desires. But in order to do that, a brokenness has to take place in our life. Roy Hessian said to be broken is the beginning of revival. And that's true. It's the beginning of personal revival. A brokenness in a church is the beginning of a church revival. A brokenness in a nation is the beginning of national revival. But I never take for granted that people understand, and I would encourage you to do that also as you talk with people, never take for granted that people understand common words that we throw around. What is brokenness? Because in many people's minds, brokenness is not something desired, but something to avoid because they don't understand it. Well, in your notes, uh, you have a definition. This is not a technical, deep theological definition. It's just a working definition. You could probably improve on this definition and feel free to do so. But brokenness is that process. And sometimes it looks like it happens in an instant. But usually that's just the culmination of a process. It's a process whereby God removes that which hinders Christ from experientially being our life and living his life through us. Um, 
So brokenness involves the removal of some things. And so our self-life is filled with pride and selfishness and self-sufficiency. And until that is removed, until it is broken, then we never experience Christ's resurrection life flowing through us. Now, this process whereby the Lord chips away all that hinders His resurrection life from flowing through us is not a pleasant process. It's painful. It's difficult. And yet, God has a higher purpose than that we be happy and comfortable. Uh, the people in the church I pastor, I've been there, and I'm coming at this with a pastor's heart. I've been a pastor for 26 and a half years almost, and I, I, in the church I'm in now, I've been there almost 17 years, and, and if I'm in a group and, and somebody that doesn't, hasn't been there long makes this statement, the people sort of like back up, like, oh no, here he goes, he just punched the pastor's button. If you want to punch my button, here's what you say. After all, God always wants us to be happy. That punches my button real quick <laughs> because it is just not true. God has a much higher purpose than that we be happy. Because when you really understand happy, happy depends on what happens. It depends upon your circumstances. It depends upon what others do. Therefore, if my whole goal in life is happiness, I am dependent upon circumstances over which I can do nothing about and people that I can do nothing about. What a miserable way to live. No, he desires for us to glorify him by being fruitful, by seeing the fruit that only the Holy Spirit can produce flourishing in our life, that fruit that's described in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 as love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and meekness and faithfulness and temperance or self-control. Now, uh, in the scriptures, you see a pattern of fruit flowing out of brokenness. I, I put in your notes a quote by Dr. M. R. DeHaan, who was a, a medical doctor who became a preacher. And um, uh, let me read to you that quote. You can read it on your own, but it's so good. I'm going to make sure you read it, so I'm going to read it to you. Before a thing can be made, something must be broken. Before the house is built, the tree must be broken down. Before the foundation can be laid, the rocks must be blasted from their quarry bed, and they have, which they have long lain in peace and quiet. Before the ripe grain can cover the fields, the soil must be broken and beaten small. The cutting blade of the plow must turn over the sod, and the sharp teeth of the harrow must pulverize the soil. Before there can be life, there must be death. Before there can be joy, there must be weeping. And the joy that floods the mother's heart at the sound of the first cry of her newborn babe was preceded by the tears of anguish of childbirth. Our Lord Jesus stated that principle in these words, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And so our Heavenly Father breaks us that we might be blessed. And as the psalmist David said in Psalm 51, 17, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He delights in it. Now, the first thing I want us to see, and I'm not going to get to everything on your notes. I always hate to be the speaker right before lunch and the speaker right after lunch. <laughs> before lunch, they're like, 
how much longer is he going to go? I am hungry. After lunch, it's like, I can't keep my eyes open. So, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> we might ought to take a vote on that. But anyway, let's look first of all at the purpose of brokenness. And, and then we're going to look at an, an example in the Scripture of the process that God takes us through. And I think we're going to see that, that all of us, go through a similar process to the process God took Jacob in the Old Testament through. So we won't have time to deal with that one in detail with Jacob, but we can at least point it out and you can study that for yourself. First of all, let's look at the purpose of, of humility, of, of brokenness, which is, first of all, to procure humility. Uh, every one of you that's been a parent or have even worked with preschoolers know that um, children are born with a me-first mentality. You don't have to teach them. They're born that way. Two of their favorite words are mine and no. And both are manifestations of the pride that characterizes every child of Adam that enters this world. You know, a part of the old man, the Adamic nature, if you had to summarize it down to one word, it's, it's that pride. I want to be as God. That's why Lucifer, the angel created by God to lead in worship in heaven, became the devil. Satan was pride. And so this pride, this sense of self-sufficiency of, I want to do it on my own, um, that's got to be dealt with. So as this child grows up into adulthood, that mine and no and me first mentality takes on more adult forms, but it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Sad thing to see a 50-year-old person acting like a two-year-old. And yet, that's very common. And so, even after a person is born again, our flesh has been programmed by the old man who's now crucified with Christ, but boy, his programming is still there in our own flesh. And so, that, that pride, that self-centered, that, that self-sufficiency, um, we have to be broken from that. And so God breaks us that we might procure humility. Andrew Murray said, Pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. So, humility. God desires, you've heard this probably a hundred times since you've been here, God desires to bring us to the end of self so that our pride might be replaced with humility. James 4, 6 says God does what? Resists the proud, but gives His grace to whom? To the humble. Okay? Well, what is humility? That's another one of those things we better make sure we know what we're talking about. I've read various definitions of it. Uh, I like, I'm quoting Andrew Murray several times. You can kind of tell he, he's sort of a favorite of mine, one of my favorites. He says, humility is the sense of nothingness that comes when we see how truly God is all and in which we make way for God to be all. Now, we could spend a long time analyzing that definition, but I think it's a pretty good one. Humility is when I come to the place of total dependence upon God. I have taken my abilities, my goals, my plans, my strength, and I've surrendered them at the foot of the cross. The cross has been applied to my self-life, I've come to the end of prideful self. And, and I suppose that doesn't, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that that has to involve painful circumstances, but have you ever known anybody that 
was broken that didn't go through painful circumstances? I've yet to meet one. I'm sure there's some out there, but I've not met one. It's a painful, painful process. And so this humility, this, this approach to life of total dependence upon the Lord, this humility comes at the price of our pride having the cross applied to it, of, of being broken. And of course the example is, our example in anything, is, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he didn't have to deal with the pride because he was perfect, but I want you to see the humility, his total dependence upon the Father. This is a part of the life of Christ while he walked on this earth that many times we miss. L listen to some verses I just put together out of the Gospel of John. And they're portions of verses, but they're not taken out of context. John 5, 19. Jesus, and this is, Jesus is speaking in all these. The Son can do nothing of himself. John 5.30, I can of myself do nothing. I do not speak my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. John 5.41, I do not receive honor from man. John 6.38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 7.16, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. <coughs> John 8.28, I do nothing of myself. John 8.50, I do not seek my own glory. Now, that's just a sampling, but Jesus lived in complete dependence on the Father. And he's the perfect example of humility. He gave up his rights. He owned no home. Thank you very much. He owned no home. He had no possessions. He was reviled on the cross, and yet First Peter says that he reviles not again. He did not return the reviling. Total humility. Uh... Again, quoting Andrew Murray, this is not in your notes, but this is a good one. Just as water seeks and finds the lowest place, so the moment God finds a person abased and empty, his glory and power flow in to bless. Oh, that's great. When, when we become broken, abased before God, recognizing our total dependence upon him, seeing the self-life for exactly what it is, then like water flowing to a low place, the power and the blessings of God pour into that life. Uh, that's why I say brokenness is a painful thing to go through, but the results are absolutely fantastic. And that's why God, in His love, engineers and allows. I chose those words carefully. Engineers and allows all sorts of circumstances come into our life that causes pain so that we can be broken. When people go for counseling, what are they looking for? I think if you had to pick one word, it would be relief. <laughs> they want relief. And the greatest temptation, and as a pastor, I gave in to this temptation not knowing it's what I was doing. The greatest temptation is to give them that relief before the brokenness has taken place. You have done someone great harm. I shudder to think of the people that I did great harm with by taking biblical principles, biblical counseling, and apply it to their life to make them feel better, to stop their descent into brokenness, to give them tools with which they could cope and hindered God's work in their life. 
Now, that sounds strange. I taught a class in our church on that, and I had one lady that just never caught that. She said it could never be wrong to teach people principles of God's Word. Well, wrong might be too strong a word, it's, it's, but it's out of order. Everything in God's Word is perfect, but there is an order to things in God's Word. And God desires to bring us to brokenness. The, <clears throat> the second purpose of brokenness is to provide for our needs. Um, and this point, is, I believe, is going to be really liberating to most people you talk with. And I hope you've come to these conclusions already. If not, it can be liberating to you. God has given us three basic needs that all mankind have. And I've seen all kinds of lists of these basic needs. And, and there's, you know, everybody's got their list, but I've found that most all of them can be put under one of these three. The need for acceptance and love, and I put those two together. You can separate them, but they're so closely aligned that I just choose to call that one need. My need for love and acceptance, the need for security, and the need for significance. And deep down in the core of our being, in our spirit, we were all born with this need. All of us have this desperate need for acceptance and love. We have a desperate need for security. We have a desperate need for significance to know that my life has counted for something, that I'm, I'm not a nothing, that I come to the end of my life. I had a, a young man tell me the other day, he said, my greatest fear is that I'll come to the end of my life and not even know why I've lived. That sense of, I want to have a sense of what to, some significance to my life. That's a desperate need that God has put within all of us. You know why he put it there? I'm, I know you know this already, but he put it there to act like a magnet to draw us to him. Because he's the only one who can meet those needs. But until I am broken, what do I try to do? I try to get those needs met everywhere else. Um, let's just look at them one by one, and we could spend weeks on each one of these needs, but the need for, for acceptance and love, the, the need to feel like we, we belong, we're accepted. Now, the world tries to satisfy that need by giving us gangs. Gangs. You say, oh, you're talking about the people that wear certain kind of clothing that are in the inner city and in the part of town you want to, don't want to drive through. Well, yeah, but... These gangs are always not always on the street. There's gangs in country clubs. There's gangs in offices. There are even gangs in churches Amen. we want to get a part of. It's, it's people who act, who think, who look like we do, and, and, and they accept us into their gang. One of the main tools, therefore, of brokenness is the R word. Rejection. Right. That is... If not the main tool, certainly one of the main tools that God has. That He allows us to experience rejection, to bring us to a place of brokenness, so that we see that true acceptance is found only in Him. Only in Him. And so even the rejection we experience, and, and I'm, you've already spent a lot of time on that, so I'm going to move quickly over that one, but even the rejection is a tool God uses to break us to bring us to the place that we look to Him for our love and acceptance. And that's why the most liberating verse in the Bible for me, it's not my favorite verse, I've got some others that I claim more on a daily basis, but the most liberating verse in the Bible for me is Ephesians 1.6. To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He has made us accepted in the Beloved. Um, so, even 
when you have accepted God's acceptance and have come to the end of trying to get that need met from other people, it still hurts when other people reject you, but you can live with it. Rejection used to send me on a tailspin for months, and now it sends me on a tailspin for about 10 minutes, and I get over it. <laughs> uh, some would be a little more than that, but uh, that's a desperate need. So the purpose of brokenness is so that God can meet our needs, that so we quit looking everywhere else. Um, the second basic need we have is security. Uh, and, and so instead of looking to God, he gave us that need to draw us to him. We start looking to everything else. The people who come to you, the people whose lives are falling apart, they're insecure because they're looking for security in all the wrong places. Uh, we try to find it in stuff. We try to find it in people. So we become consumed with greed to get more stuff, bigger houses, more possessions, all to get security. Um, we look for our security in people, but people are fickle. People change. Um, people trying to find, trying to find their security in their spouse, and their spouse just left them. Suddenly, their security is gone. Um, security in the fact that you're successful in your position. Listen, if you try to find security in in doing a job well, um, God's just liable to show you. Uh, that he's your only source of security by taking that away from you. And don't think it can't be. Those of you who uh, are not from America won't understand a couple of these illustrations, but you sports fans will understand they fired Tom Landry. Can you believe it? Tom Landry, the founding coach of the America's favorite football team, they fired him. Um, Jonathan Edwards, who's been called the greatest intellect that America ever produced back in the mid-1700s, well, the late 1700s when this happened, but he was the spark in the first great awakening that spread across the American colonies that laid the foundation for most everything that's good about America. Jonathan Edwards was the pastor of the Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts. God sent revival through this man. He was a brilliant man. He wrote books. He was, he was an a, a amazing, brilliant intellect. He got fired from his church. He got fired. I'm telling you, there is no security in anything attached to this earth. None. There's no security in stuff. There's no security in people. There's only security in Him, in Christ. And so God will bring people to a place of brokenness so they see that He's the only source of their need, meeting that need for security. We've got a need for significance. We try to meet that need by achieving our goals, achieving success according to the world's definition of success. We seek titles. I'm a pastor, so I can talk bad about pastors. You know, if you are one, you can talk about it. Pastors are amazing in how they seek these titles. Wearing all these titles. Now, and it's not that there's anything wrong with the title. What's wrong is seeking the title to try to think you're somebody. Um, and so we look for significance in titles and accomplishments. Uh, and yet, our only source of significance is who we are in Christ, our identity in Him. That I am a royal blue blood, a king's kid, an heir of God, and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That's, that's where significance comes. Now, what sin is it when we go other places other than to God himself? What sin would we call this going to get my needs met for love and acceptance from people and relationships? 
going to get my security need met from trying to find things and people in my life, getting my need for significance from accomplishments and things I do. Well, let me just tell you what sin that is. It starts with an I. It's the sin of idolatry. Let me give you a good definition of idolatry. This is not original with me, but when I heard this, it was one of those I was breaking, you know, trying to find a pen to write it down. It was so good. Idolatry is anything we turn to for what God told us to turn to Him for. Okay? And say that again. Idolatry is anything we turn to for what God told us to turn to Him for. And so God, all through the Old Testament especially, although it's in the New Testament also, the last verse of the book of 1 John, but especially in the Old Testament, God hates the sin of idolatry. And when people are trying, even believers, are constantly trying to get their needs met through all these other avenues, God is going to allow brokenness in our life to bring us to the end of that to say, only I can meet your needs. When are you going to see that? So I'm going to have to take away from you some of these things. Well, the final purpose of brokenness is to prepare us for fruitfulness. Jeremiah 4.3 says, break up your fallow ground. Hosea 10.12, break up your fallow ground for it's time to seek the Lord. Fallow ground means idle, uncultivated ground. Ground that cannot produce fruit. You see, sometimes our life just gets in a rut. You know, ruts are boring, but they're comfortable. And so God comes in and just allows some things to break apart our rut. I had a man, there was a consultant that dealt with the staff of our church several years ago, and he made a statement. It was one of those, wow. And I've copied, I copied it down and I've used it so often with our staff. He says, every church, and you could apply this to an individual life, every church must resist the calm of fruitlessness. Mm. Resisting the calm of fruitlessness. You know what I found in a church? And I'm a pastor, so that's where I'm coming from. I found in a church that when everything is peaceful and everything is calm and there are no, no strife, nobody's upset. There is no fruit. Nothing's happening. Nothing going on. And then I've discovered that when God goes to work and lives are being transformed, it's a mess. There's people leaving the church. There's people fussing. It's like, it's, it's, and, and it took me a long time to figure out that correlation. Now I start getting worried when everything's peaceful. And yet there's a, there is a sense of, of we want to, we're pulled to that. It's kind of like, I like everything just to be calm. Just calm. And so God says, okay, I want, I've sent you forth to bear fruit. And fruit doesn't come when you're in a rut. And so God allows circumstances to come in to bring us to brokenness. Well, as I said, the tragedy of so much counseling, even, quote, biblical counseling, and I know you've heard this over and over, but from a pastor's standpoint and somebody that did this type of counseling for years, the tragedy is that we help people and give them tools to cope 
before they've come to a place of brokenness, the end of self, so that they can appropriate Christ as their very life. Not just the one who gave them eternal life, his life, but the one who is their life. A life of humility. A life of total dependence upon him. A life of walking by faith, of looking to him for our need for acceptance and love, looking to him for our security, looking to him for our sense of significance and our, who we are in Christ. That kind of life, a fruitful life. We stop them short. By making him feel better. And I've done that so often. And uh, I've repented of that. Now, for just a few moments, I, I want to look at the process of brokenness. And if you have a Bible, this one would be worth turning to in Genesis 32. And I want to just introduce you to this. Some of you may be well aware of it. But I want to introduce you to the life of Jacob as an example of the process that God brings us to brokenness, okay? And I'm not saying that everybody does exactly like this, but boy, this sure was an example of my life, how he brought me to brokenness and uh, so many other people I've talked with. So let me just spend about five or ten minutes on this, and we'll rush through it, but I want you to see it. Um, first of all, Jacob's problem... Uh, oh, look at that quote by Watchman Nee. If that which is outward is not broken, that which is inward cannot be released. Well, that's what we talked about earlier, the release. Uh, well, it started with a burden. Jacob had a burden. Let me read to you Genesis 32, verses 3 through 6. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau, thus... Your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female servants. I have sent uh, to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau. He also is coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. Now, let me remind you of the background of that passage. 20 years earlier, 20 years earlier, Jacob, had cheated his older brother Esau, older by a matter of moments, they were twins, but he had cheated his older brother out of the firstborn's blessing. He'd done it through trickery and deceit, and Esau was mad. He was mad. And Jacob fled for his life, and now he's been living for 20 years with his uncle Laban, long, long ways away, and now he's coming home. It's interesting if we had time to go into the story of Jacob and Laban. It's interesting. It's a case of the cheaters cheating the cheaters. <laughs> he met his match and his uncle Laban. They were just alike. They cheated each other. And, and really, Jacob didn't do so much cheating as Laban cheated him. But Jacob was always conniving. He was always... In fact, the name Jacob means conniver. And he was always scheming, finding a way to do it himself. And, and you know, we talk about the flesh. Some, we, we have different versions of the flesh. Jacob had, he had uh, USDA choice flesh, you know. He, he, could, he could do it on his own. He could accomplish all this stuff on his own. He had, he had strong flesh. And that's why it took so long for him to be broken. So here he comes back. Uh, and, and everything Jacob has done, he's always, we have an old saying in the country where I grew up that, that 
That guy, wherever he falls from, he lands on his feet. You ever heard that? In other words, what that saying means is, is that no matter what you get in, you always, things turn out right. Well, it always seemed Jacob came out ahead. So now he's coming back, and, and so he, he, he sends people ahead to kind of feel out his brother. What, what's his brother? 20 years. Is he still full of hatred and vengeance, or is his brother softened? Has he softened a little? And boy, he, he tells his servants, they really lay it on thick. They're saying, my Lord Esau, your servant Jacob, oh, he's really doing it. And when they come back, I can imagine Jacob's face in verse 6 when they said, we saw your brother Esau, he's coming to meet you, and he has 400 men with him. Now, what's Jacob going to do? He can't go back to Laban because he just had a bad conflict with Laban and had to run leaving there. He can't go back Esau's coming ahead. What was God doing? God was bringing him to a place where there was no way out. He was breaking Jacob. And it starts with this deep burden. He didn't know what to do. Well, let me tell you what he did first. He did what he's always done. The flesh is very predictable. That's why it's important you know your own version of the flesh. He began to scheme. That's what he always did. Look at his scheming, all right? In verses 7 and 8. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him, and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. Here's what he was thinking. If he gets one, he won't get the other. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company, which is left, will escape. Then, after he'd done all this scheming, he thought, oh, 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 let's pray. <laughs> well, look, that next verse. Then Jacob said, verse 9, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country. He said, Lord, you told me to come back here, uh, and I will deal well with you. I, will not, I, I am not worthy of the least of the mercies of all thy truth, which you have shown your servant. I have crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. He's bragging to the Lord about all he's accomplished. And so he, here's, the, here's his process. Scheme and then pray and ask God to help you out a little bit. You ever done that? scheme, work it out your own way. I got it figured out. Oh, Lord, help me. Help me. Help me. Can't, I, can, I, I can do 99% of it, but if you just help me with that little 1%. That was Jacob's mentality. You, you ever know anybody like Jacob? We won't go there. Okay. <laughs> In the mirror. Okay. Um, now, he saw God as his last resort, not his first resource, and that was his burden. Now, Next comes a battle. But wait, it's not with Esau. Look in verse 22 of Genesis 32. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. And he took them and set them over uh, the, the brook and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, when he saw that he could not prevail against, that he did not prevail against him, he, that is, the one he rest, was wrestling with, touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, God, God never gives up on Jacob, and he never gives up on you, and he's not given up on those you counsel with. Um, if we had time to tell stories, I sympathize with Stoney. He was trying to, to, to cram a whole lot into a short period of time, and all these stories flood in of examples of that. I, I, I could tell you some failures, some people I gave up on 
that are now walking with God that God didn't give up on. God didn't give up on Jacob. And so, notice, notice how this battle takes place. By the way, let me give you a, a quote here on battle. I heard this um, from a, a man who was, was teaching one time, and he said something, and I thought, I don't think I agree with that. And the more I thought about it, I thought, he's right. He said, there is such a thing in the Bible as spiritual warfare, where we battle with demonic spirits and with the, the wiles of the devil. That, that's certainly true. Anybody that denies that is denying a big portion of the Bible. But here's what this man said. He said, most of us, our battles are not as much with Satan as they are with God. Mm -hmm. mm. And the more I thought about that, I thought, I think he's right. Most of our battles are with God. And so that's where Jacob is. Now, notice what God did to get his attention in this battle. He brought him to a place of isolation. He took his family over here. He goes off by himself. He's all alone. It was a time of, of where God could get his attention. I am convinced that one of the reasons brokenness takes such a long time in the lives of people today is because of our busyness. We're so busy. We're so, so filled with activity that God has to smack us real good just to get our attention because we're so... We're so busy. We never get alone with God. And so God gets him isolated. You know, I'm, I'm glad they didn't have portable CD players with earphones in Israel about 1000 B.C. We would have never gotten half the Psalms. <laughs> David had been listening to CDs. Uh, so, there was isolation. Then there was confrontation. In verse uh, 24... It says that he wrestled with a man. Now, who was this that Jacob was wrestling with? Well, it's interesting. I've discovered over the years that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Listen to Hosea chapter 12, where Hosea gives commentary on this very incident. In Hosea 12, verses 3 and 4, it says, He took his brother by the heel, speaking of Jacob, in the womb, and in his strength, he struggled with God. Yet he struggled with the... Yet he, yes, yes, he struggled with the angel. It's the angel of the Lord. And prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel. And there he spoke to us. So Hosea said he was, he was wrestling with God. So this angel called in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. I, I believe it was the pre-incarnate Christ. And, and he was battling with the Lord himself. I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that that's what was happening. And remember, who started the battle? The Lord did. It was the Lord who jumped on Jacob. And it's the Lord who comes after us. Brokenness begins not when we finally come to the place that we say, okay, Lord, I'm ready for you to do a work. He finds you in your self-centered life filled with pride, and he says, Hoop, and he just says, we're going to wrestle a little. And his wrestling takes many different forms, and it's all painful. It's all painful when you wrestle with God. So he brings him to a place of burden, to, I mean, to a place of isolation out of his burden. The battle starts. He's isolated. There's a confrontation, and then there's a time of desperation. They wrestled all night, and Jacob wouldn't give in. He wouldn't surrender. He was wrestling with God. He, he wanted God, and he wanted God's power, but he wasn't willing to make an unconditional surrender. You know, that's, 
the huge majority of people I counsel with, that's exactly where they are. They really do want what God has, or else they wouldn't come to me. Why would you go to a Christian counselor, to a pastor? You, you really want what God has, but they're not ready to make an unconditional surrender. So they're saying, is there some way I could get the blessing without having to go through all this surrender stuff? And so there was a wrestling match. And all the love with which our Lord draws us to himself, to bring it to the place that we take hands off our life, as Stoney said a moment ago, to rave, wave the white flag of surrender, to abide in him, trust completely in him. Uh, and finally, here's what the Lord says. He says, Jacob, I hate to do this, but he crippled him. In verse 25, Now when he saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now let me tell you what this means. If you know anything about wrestling, what's the most important part of your body in wrestling? It's your legs. Your legs. A wrestler can make it with a little bit weaker upper body strength if he's got strong legs. Uh, and so God touches Jacob at the point of his strength. That's how brokenness works. He'll touch you at the point of your strength. And Jacob's now <clears throat> in a place of desperation. <clears throat> he'd no doubt figured that... He, I believe, now, and this is kind of my adding in here, but I think he'd always figured if all else failed with Esau, he could outrun him. <laughs> and, now, and now he doesn't have a leg to stand on. Now his, now his hip's out of joint. He... He, he can't run. He has no more hope. Now, things begin to change when God touches him and he's no longer able to, in his own strength, battle and scheme. And God brings him to this place of desperation. Then comes the barrenness. Verse 26, And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go. Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Jacob has finally realized the barrenness of his own flesh, his own self-life. He's come to the end of himself. There's no more bargaining, no more scheming, no more conniving, no asking God to help him out a little bit. Now he's come to the absolute end. Lord, you're my only hope. I have nowhere else to turn. I will not let go unless you bless me. I know that I... I I must have your power and your presence and your solution and your life and your protection. And he stops wrestling and starts clinging. Ooh, that's the key of brokenness. When you stop wrestling and start clinging. Well, that's exactly how the Lord treats us. He brings us to the place of brokenness that we come to him hanging on saying, Lord, I won't let go. You're my only hope. I look only to you. That's somebody who's broken. So let's look then finally at his brokenness. In verse 26, And he said, Let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless, me, unless you bless me. So he said to Jacob, What's your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, he says, what's your name? Now, did, was the Lord saying, you look familiar, but no. He was, he was asking for a confession. In the Bible, names meant much more than just they do today, a handle we put on somebody to know how to get in touch with them. And so God is looking for a confession. What's your name? Look there at the definition. The Hebrew word for Jacob means supplanter, 
cheater, deceiver. Who are you? He was confessing the self-life. He says, this is who I am. This, this, is, this is self, Lord. And the Lord said, now that we've dealt with it, you got a new name. Israel, one who has power with God, a prince with God. Uh, blessings come out of brokenness. Cooperate with God in the lives of people you counsel with. Don't get in God's way. Ask God for revelation, wisdom, application of His Word as to how you can cooperate in the breaking process. And that's why one of the hardest things that I've ever had to do in counseling, I'm a fix-it person. You know, you've got a problem, I want to fix it. Uh, I'm not always good at it, but I want to fix it. And the whole, the hardest thing for me to do is to tell somebody, I'm sorry, nothing I can do for you. There's nothing God can do for you until you deal with this fear of surrender, this unwillingness to let go. And so I'm here, and I'm going to pray for you. And you can call me anytime. You say, I don't think that's good counseling. Well, not. it's not most of the time. But when you finally come, you've... And I'm talking about not on your first session here. I'm talking about after you've shared the truth, they've heard the truth, they know the truth, they can quote it back to you, then all that's left is to do some more wrestling. And you know what God's going to do? He's going to touch the socket of their hip. And He's going to bring them to a place of real desperation. And then to watch those same people come back and say, now I'm ready. Mm. Okay, thank you all very much.